Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with psychologist and behavioral finance expert, Daniel Crosby. Daniel, who is Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital, is author of numerous top-selling books on behavioral finance. In this episode, Daniel provides excellent frameworks and tactical ideas to help investors during difficult periods and uncertain times, like that of today's market and the fallout from COVID-19. As you will see in here, Daniel's knowledge on investor behavior is vast and his ability to communicate useful concepts and frameworks to help investors become better and more successful over time are spot on. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and have this uh, discussion. So this is a good time to be talking to someone like yourself, someone that has uh, expertise in human psychology and investor behavior, among other things. What we wanted to do before we talked about investing, though, is just discuss sort of what we're going through right now um, at a human level. Obviously, everyone's situation is different, but the bottom line is there's tons of uncertainty um, health-wise, economically, changes in public behavior. Um, we're all sort of hunkered down in our houses, homeschooling, if you have kids and just trying to adjust. So what we wanted to hear from you was if you have tips on how people can sort of deal with these uncertain and stressful times. Yeah, so I think everyone on the call is an evidence-based and a rules-based investor, uh, and I try to take an evidence-based and a rules-based approach to to personal wellness during this difficult time as well. So some of my favorite evidence on what brings about wellness uh, comes from the research into positive psychology that was done primarily by uh, Dr. Martin Seligman. And he has a five-factor model, just like we have five-factor models for investing. He has a five-factor model for wellness called the PERMA model. So just briefly, it's an acronym. So the P in PERMA is for positive experiences, which is just like fun or lightheartedness. Um, the E is for engagement, which is hard work. Uh, the R is for relationships or, you know, people. The M is for meaning, which is doing something bigger than yourself, whether that's, you know, spirituality, meditation, charitable work, doing good in the world. Uh, and the A is for advancement. So that's, you know, making sure you're a little farther along today than you were yesterday. So for me, that's, you know, I, I do think of it much the same way as I think about investing. And so the, I've been trying to incorporate elements of all five of those things in, in every day, ideally, certainly in every week. You want, you know, a little bit of connection. You want a little bit of fun. Uh, you want a little bit of doing some good in the world. I think if you can try and touch all five of those bases, I think you've done something pretty powerful. But when, when you think through those, too, you see how it's easy uh, to have some of the traditional ways that we went about getting those needs met have, have been eroded, right? I mean, something like relationships, it's not it's not easy the same way that it used to be. Uh, but I think if we're if we're intentional and we're clever and and we're systematic, we can we can still get there. Yeah, I like that because you know for, I'm a very systematic person, so for for me it's good to be able to like lay out some rules and say exactly you know things for me to look at every day, a list I can look at and 
things I can do to try to improve myself throughout this. Um, unfortunately, the approach I have been taking, which is having some more wine and having some more ice cream, is probably not supported by Seligman re Seligman's research, I would assume. Yeah, so I've, I've been taking the approach of telling everyone to be very conscientious of what they eat and what they put in their body while uh, eating more sugar than I've ever eaten in my entire life. So I'm not in a position to judge you for that one, Jack. Yeah, well, my plan is just to hope I can change when this is over, you know, and I think that's kind of everyone's plan right now is, you know, assume that when, the, when this is over, the bad behaviors will finally change and I can go back to what I was doing before. I don't know whether I will, will or not, but I'm hoping I can. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been walking about eight to ten miles a day. It's been just gorgeous here in Atlanta. So I've been walking like eight to ten miles a day, but then also baking more than I've ever baked before. So we're gonna hope it's offsetting penalties. We'll see. I want to ask you about the backside of this. So we're obviously been confined to our homes for a long time. Um, you know, you are you and I both live in Georgia, and Georgia on I think Monday or, or Friday is about to attempt to open things up against maybe the best advice of many of the medical professionals, but you know, a lot of this, I, I was really worried about, you know, what's going to happen in Georgia here because, you know, obviously people don't think we should be opening up and we might spread the virus. But then I took a step back and I said, you know, a lot of this doesn't have to do with what governments are doing. A lot of this has to do with what we are doing. And so if Georgia opens back up and nobody changes their behavior and nobody does anything, I don't know that it's going to have the negative impact a lot of people think. And so I was thinking about that also for when, when it finally is safe to open up for the country. And, you know, there's some people who think, what, what everybody's going to do is everybody's going to run out to the local restaurants and they're going to run out to the local bars and they've been stuck in their house for so long that they're going to go right back to what they're doing. And there's other people that think, you know, sort of what I was referencing with Georgia, it's going to take a long time. You know, we're all going to be very hesitant after this. And I'm just wondering what you think it looks like on the backside of this and, and how we're going to integrate back into our everyday lives. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, nobody knows for sure, but here's, here's my stab at it. My, my guess is that it's going to be bifurcated and that it's going to uh, deepen some of the class distinctions and some of the economic disparities that are already problematic in our country. Because, you know, you and I both live, uh, we both live in Georgia. Georgia is one of the first out of the gate uh, to, to open back up, even though our cases are still spiking. So sort of inexplicably, we're, we're going to open things back up. But, I mean, you won't catch me at a bowling alley or, or you know, getting my hair cut, you know, at any of the places that are open. And the reason, the, the reason that you won't catch me outside, you know, th this next weekend is because I have, you know, I have savings, I have a comfortable home, I have adequate food, and I have a job. Like, I just, I, I have a job that I can do remotely. So it doesn't, re it doesn't require me to, to go out and do something potentially dangerous. I think many people, most people perhaps, are, are not as lucky. And so I think uh, in many respects, the reason why this thing has been so hard is that people who were already economically and financially at risk, you know, people who uh, were paid lower wages were less likely to have health care or less likely to have savings, they are now many of the essential workers. I mean, they are the people who are, uh, you know, helping stock the grocery shelves. They're the people who are driving delivery trucks. And so I think we as a society uh, owe an enormous debt of gratitude and thanks to these people. And I think we owe it uh, to them going forward to figure out ways to, to make things better for, for all of us. But I think you're going to see a real sort of haves and have nots distinction that, that isn't fair. But I think it's probably how it's going to play out that people who can afford uh, to, to stay home likely will. And those who can no longer afford it will not. 
I also think it will become politicized, which is uh, really, really disappointing to me. I, th I think it's going to uh, sort of break down along political lines. Georgia is, of course, uh, you know, Georgia, of course, is a red state. I think you'll see red states opening up uh, uh, before blue states. And I think it will take on uh, political undertones that are disappointing uh, to me because I think for, for a small period of time, we, we really all were in this together. Uh, but I think it I think that that will start to break down. And I saw uh, I saw a survey yesterday that talked about Americans willingness to sort of submit to to government mandates, government mandated lockdowns. And we were the least likely in the world to submit to government mandated lockdowns. We were in the low 30 percent sort of compliance with that. Whereas some of the Asian countries who have a history of dealing with pandemics, not to mention a, a wholly different cultural fabric, were in the 80-something percent comfortable range. Now that's you know that's that's good and bad. I'm not saying it's you know I'm not saying it's good or bad. There's there's reasons to want to trust your government, and there's also reasons to believe that that immoral governments will use a crisis to to overreach. So it's not it's it's neither here nor there, but it's just it's not in the American psyche to be shut down. So, you know, we're going to open up and I think it will uh, I think it will deepen some of the economic disparities that, that have existed for a long time. I think they'll come into even sharper relief. To your point about getting, you know, um, together as a country and sort of, you know, coming together and trying to tackle this. It's sort of, a lot of people have made analogies to like World War Two and that that was a time when the country was able to, you know, get behind a wartime situation to try to beat the enemy. And, you know, I, I there was an article in the, in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed piece that sort of said we should make um, overcoming this virus and this pandemic sort of a national priority. And if we can do that, you know, that's the best way to sort of come out of this. Um, and, you know, I hope that I hope that we can do it. But to your point, you know, if it goes down the road of being politicized and, you know, one party against each other and trying to, you know, debate the merits of different things, you know, that's not going to, I think, be productive for that type of um, situation. Well, it's a little, you know, the fact that this is sort of an invisible enemy makes it mm -hmm. makes it harder, right? If you think about a world war, you think about any kind of an armed right. conflict, you know, for better or worse, there's a, a boogeyman, there's a bad guy that you can kind of personify and vilify. Here, it's this sort of invisible enemy. I don't think it's as, as easy to do. Mm. And then, you know, I think, again, you've got, you've got people come at this from such different places, because I mean, my first impulse is to say, ah, we should, we should keep Georgia shut down, like, you know, we should keep Georgia shut down. But then, you know, my checks are still clearing. Like, I mean, I, I understand if someone hasn't gotten paid in six weeks, how they would have a very different opinion of this, this whole thing than, than I do. Yeah. So, so I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. It is impossibly difficult because it seems like what it takes to protect the economy and what it takes to protect human life is, is very much at odds in, in many respects. And there, there really are no, no easy answers, but I wish I wish we could rally, but I think uh, it's it's much easier for some people to rally around this cause than others, and I want to be you know sensitive to that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about, and this goes back, I think, to the relationship part of your sort of emotional factor model that you outlined before, but is 
you know, what's kind of transpired here with the shutdown is obviously people are using technology more and more. I mean, people are using text messages and email and social media a lot to begin with, but now this has really accel accelerated all that. I mean, I know for like my families, both my wife's side and, and my side, you know, we did Easter via like a Zoom, a Zoom group meeting, um, obviously with homeschooling, you know, that's accelerating sort of the educational aspect of it and even like online fitness. Um, you know, there's more and more fitness classes that are being conducted online, sort of people are embracing that. So I wanted to ask, is, you know, what are your feelings on like the use of technology from a human perspective and that, the tra sort of the trajectory that that puts us on in terms of relationships we have with people? I mean, what, what are the pluses and minuses in your mind um, of that acceleration of the use of technology sort of in relationships and other things? Yeah, I think the more the more like in real life interaction you can make it, the better. Um, so I think that video is better than phone. I think that phone is better than text. You know, I know that I'm sort of can get lazy and, and sort of over rely on texting. But I think the more that you can make it like right, our, you know, our old school human interactions, the better. I think there's a lot of upside. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of upside, and I hope we learn something from this. I is, was it Jeremy Grantham that had the quote in the financial crisis about what people would learn from this? And he said, you know, in the short term, a lot, in the medium term, a little, in the long term, effectively nothing, you know, paraphrasing. So I wonder about the long term implications of this. Like, will we really all be doing these many Zoom calls, you know, two or three years from now? I sort of doubt it. Um, but I think a lot of I think there's been a lot of waste, candidly. I think there have been a lot of conferences that probably didn't need to happen. I think there's been a lot of business travel that was frivolous. Uh, it's not great for the earth. It's not great for families. So I think there is a, a human cost and a relational cost. And, I, you know, being, being a Southerner, I am a, a hugger and a close talker and, you know, just a, a generally like warm and friendly guy. I can't wait till we get back to, to you know, how it used to be before. Uh, but I hope we do learn some things, and I hope we can get a little bit more judicious about how we spend our travel dollars and the need to have, you know, a conference a week. Yeah, you know, it seems like it's both good and bad. You know, you and I both sitting here in Atlanta, you know, if, if we had an hour meeting in New York City before this, you know, we've got to give up at least a full day, potentially a night away from our families to have that meeting. Yeah. And so you could say, you know, technology is turning this into a Zoom meeting, you know, that might take an hour and then it's over. But the, the flip side of that is, you know, now we are losing that human connection. So we're not, you know, by not flying up and having that face-to-face -face meeting with the person in New York City, do we lose something along the way? And I sort of struggle with that. You know, I'm not really sure, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of a trade-off. Like you said, some of this was just unnecessary, and, but we don't want to go so far that we lose all of it, and now everything takes place via Zoom. Yeah, I think in a good economy, I think in a bull market, it was easy to just say, hey, get on a plane, you know, I mean, you know, to say, hey, get on a plane, but it is expensive. It is, you know, taxing on people and families. So I hope, I hope we really land somewhere in the middle. I mean, there's no substitute for human interaction. There's no substitute for, for shaking someone's hand and looking them in the eye in many respects. But uh, I, I also think it had perhaps gone a little bit overboard. And I know my company has already seen that I can be in some ways, I can have broader reach. Like I've said yes to a lot of uh, online conferences and virtual speaking engagements and webinars 
that I would have had to have said no to previously because they didn't sort of meet the threshold for, you know, having enough people or that sort of thing to, to put me on a plane. But, you know, I, I feel like my reach has been broadened as a result of this. And, you know, and I'm home every night uh, with my family, which I which I love. Now, would I love to, you know, would I love to go out to eat or would I love to be able to go on a vacation? Yeah, of course. But I, I hope we land somewhere in the middle, I guess, is the quick answer. We, we, we might be one of those um, places that has benefited from you not uh, being able to travel because we got you on this podcast. No, I would have never <laughs> spoken to you. I would have never <laughs> spoken to you. Dude. No, <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about investing because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, what we're dealing with right now, both the market going down, but also what we're dealing with in, in our re- everyday lives is sort of a perfect storm of everything working against us. You know, as, as you've talked about a lot, we're not built to be good investors in the first place. Right. And then you put us in a situation like this and, you know, it can definitely lead to some bad decisions. And so I was wondering if, if investors are thinking about panicking right now, you know, if they're about to abandon their strategy, if they're about to go to cash, I was just wondering if you have some tips you could give them on some things they might be able to do before they make that decision that would help to maybe make a sound decision versus a one, you know, that's more of a panicky decision. Yeah. So uh, we have a, we have a three-step process we've developed, and we, we really developed this process to help advisors talk to clients. Uh, but if there's any sort of individual investors listening, I think it can be applied, you know, intrapersonally as well. So it's, it's three Ps because everything that's true either rhymes or is alliterative. So it's three, it's three Ps. And the first P is for purpose. So I think the first thing that investors need to do is sort of just revisit the plan. Like, you know, why did I begin this journey in the first place? Why, like, what am I investing for? What kind of returns do I need? What is this all about? And the simple fact is that in times of stress, right, in times of stress, your body can't differentiate a uh, physical stressor, like being physically attacked or being chased by a wild animal, uh, from a psychological stressor of, like, looking at your retirement account falling, you know, uh, day after day. So the body's response to those two stimuli is is identical. And what the body does is that it marshals all its resources to the here and now to prepare you to either throw a punch or to run away. And it, it has the net effect of making us very, very myopic. And so the first thing we need to do is be, become long-term again. We need to stretch out that gaze a little bit. We need to remind ourselves of our, our goals and our purpose. Uh, the second thing, the, the second P is for proof. So we need to look at market history uh, and, and know a bit about how markets work and what we might expect from this. So I've written a couple of pieces recently. I'll talk to some of the proof that's keeping me uh, from, from going crazy. Uh, you know, the first thing we know is that over the last 100 years, the, the market has been in recession about 20% of the time. Right. So the fact that we come in and out of recessions is is not unprecedented and it is not historically uh, spoiled uh, the market's ability to compound wealth at a nice clip, despite the fact that one year and five were in a recession. So I have every belief that we're in a recession now, even though they won't call it for a while. Um, you know, every reason to believe we're there now. But but that fact alone doesn't mean that there's no good that can come out of this. Uh, the second thing that I look at is what it does to forward returns, right? We know that on any given year, uh, the market averages about 9.6% uh, 
uh, over long periods of time. But after you have a 20% plus drop, the expected forward return for that next, next year goes to about 14%. So if you stuck around for the risk, right, if you stuck around, if you were there when coronavirus hit and, you know, basically anyone who was invested was, if you were there for the risk, you might as well stick around for the reward. Um, and then the, the final thing that I looked at was I looked at what's happened in other years where there were global pandemics. So I looked at SARS and I looked at MERS and Ebola and swine flu. And we ended every single one of those years up double digits. Now, I have no idea if we will end this year up double digits. I, I have no clue, right? I have no idea. But what I do have faith in is the ability of human ingenuity to figure this out in the medium term. Like, I don't know if it'll take a year and a half. I don't know if it'll take two years. I don't know if it'll take two and a half years. But I have every confidence that the human family who is exerting so much time and attention on this problem will be able to solve it and that things will get better. So that's some of the proof that I look at. And then the third P is for process, right? Which is we need something to do. Um, we all know we have this uh, bias towards action at times like this when the game is sort of on the line, we, we want to do something. And as, as sound as the advice to just sit there may be, it's really hard behaviorally to execute. And so process looks like, looks different for different people, right? But it means doing something that isn't the wrong thing. It's sort of a replacement behavior to scratch that itch of you doing something that you, that, that you want to do without doing the wrong thing. So it could be balancing. Uh, it could be uh, creating a watch list and sort of putting in crash bids for high quality companies that you wanted to own before that maybe uh, were, you know, uh, too, too dear before. Uh, it could be helping in the fight against COVID-19. It could be looking for charitable opportunities or, or ways to be uh, to, to donate money or time to, to help people who are in need. It could be coming up with a new exercise regime, uh, regime or learning how to bake sourdough bread. Like it could be a hundred things, right? <laughs> but it's basically keeping your hands busy so you don't, uh, you know, so you don't mess up your portfolio. So purpose, revisit your goals, proof, remember how markets work and process, stay busy doing something positive. I think you may have answered this, but in terms of getting in front of an, an investor's true risk tolerance, so, you know, at, when, when people invest in stocks, they, a lot of people say, yeah, I can handle a 50% drawdown, but, you know, you take a million dollars and it goes to 500,000, you know, and people actually see that it gets, uh, they can make bad decisions at the very worst point in time, which is at the bottom. So. I mean, what would be in your mind, how could you try to address, you know, that up front, whether you're a financial advisor or even an individual investor? Do you have any like tactical, you know, ideas for how to condition your mind to be able to be better prepared for that or better assess your risk tolerance? That's one question. And then this, maybe a follow up question, <laughs> if you have a thought is, you know, tactically on the back end. And I think you kind of addressed it, which is, you know, once you go through that period, um, what could you do to make sure that you don't make a mistake at that very, you know, sort of worst moment in time? You may have hit on that. I think you did. But if you have any other sort of tactical, um, you know, advice there, I think that would be important, particularly where we are now. I mean, the market's not down as much as it was, but it's, it's still down for the year. Um, and we might go down further. You know, no one really knows. But 
Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So risk tolerance really is commonly talked about as one thing, but it's really three things. So, you know, your, your, your risk-taking behavior, let's call it, which is your, uh, your risk, what, what many people would refer to as risk tolerance, is comprised of three different parts. One is your risk composure, which is how much money you have and how much time you have. And, you, you know, if you have more money and you have more time, you have more ability to take risk. Your risk tolerance is your long-term, long-term attitudes towards uh, risk and return trade-offs which tend to be fairly stable over time. Uh, and then your risk composure is basically your anxiety level, like how, how easily you're shaken from the ride. And so the, the bad part about what so many advisors do is they mostly measure risk tolerance, which is these, uh, these cognitive prefrontal cortex-driven rational attitudes about risk and reward, which tend to be pretty stable over time. Like if you ask a client who was panic selling, you know, a month ago, like, hey, should you buy low and sell high? They would go, well, yeah. And they would go, why are you selling all your stock? And they would go, get out of my way. I'm selling, right? Like they they knew the thing to do. They just didn't have the the level of anxiety management or risk composure to to do it. And so, first of all, we as an industry have to start measuring risk composure. And there's, I think, there's two primary ways that we can do it. Um, one is through simulations. You know, I'm I'm working on a simulation, sort of a gamified simulation of markets right now. Jack has been helping me with it. Um, you know, that that will make it a little bit more of an immersive process. Right, a little bit more of an immersive process for people that feels a little bit more real than a questionnaire. And then even more powerfully, we just need to look at past behavior. You know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so if someone, you know, I if I had a dollar for everyone who panic sold in 0809 and would come up to me, you know, in 2015, 2016, 2017 and say, Hey, I learned my lesson. I panic sold in 0809, but the next time we get a big dip, like I'm gonna like I, I'm gonna stay the course. And I promise you that to a person, I bet they've panic sold again. Because you know, the, it's 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 behavior. So I think we as an industry need to do a better job of looking at past behavior and factoring that in when there is, you know, adequate evidence. And then I think we also need to make our risk simulations more immersive. Uh, and more realistic, more salient is the psych term for it. So uh, in terms of your, your second question about the things that we can do to, to avoid making the inopportune mistake, making the wrong mistake at the, at the wrong time, I think there's primarily two things. Um, I think that uh, one is we need to be, um, we need to be uh, rules-based. Like I think we need to be systematic. We need to be rules-based. I know I'm preaching to the converted there, but it's easy. It's easier when you just have a system. You don't have to have an opinion about what's going to happen. Because I mean, as I know, we're all, everyone on this call is, is staying abreast of the news and trying to, you know, think about what's going to happen. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible to track. And I mean, we're, we're up against, you know, effectively an act of God here. We're up against a, a natural disaster. And there's just no way 
to, to determine what's going to happen and how it will interact with the complex dynamism of the economy and the market. So being rules-based is, is one thing that will help you. And the second thing is having someone to slap the bad decision out of your hand right as you're about to, you know, about to make it. And that is an advisor. You know, if you're, if you're an asset manager, it's sort of a devil's advocate or a, a partner. If you're an advisor, if you're an end investor, it's often an advisor. Um, because education is a weak predictor of behavior, right? Education is a really, really weak predictor of behavior. So knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing uh, have very little in common. So you need education, but that's sort of necessary but not sufficient. You need a system, and then you also need sort of this, you know, break glass in case of emergency advisor to slap, you know, slap you when you want to do something stupid. I want to ask you quick about whether this has changed us negatively in a permanent way. And I want to read you, Ben Carlson did an, an interesting interview with William Bernstein recently, and I want to read you a quote from William just to and get your reaction to it. Um, the quote was, I'm going to go out on a limb. Not only will human nature continue to operate, but it's also going to be amplified by people's financial fears. It's one thing to watch your 401k get savaged when you still have a job, but when you don't know where your next meal is coming from and your 401k is what you're going to be dipping into to keep your body and soul together, I think that brings in new, different, and probably a worse kind of psychology. I don't think anything good is going to come of this. And I just wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do you think there's going to be permanent negative impacts on us as investors because of going through something like this? Well, I, I think there will be scars. Like, uh, so, I mean, I have, uh, I have a memory of, uh, I have a memory of walking by a, a penny laying on the ground and noting it, not picking it up. And my grandma, who, you know, was a child of the depression, basically grabbing me by the collar and saying, you know, don't you ever, you know, walk past money and, and not pick it up, right? <laughs> you know, don't you ever treat money lightly. And she was forever shaped by her family's early experiences with, with the Great Depression. So I think, you know, there's, there's something in psychology called primacy and recency effects. So we're, we're very uh, moved by things that happen early in a sequence and, and late in a sequence. So I think for all investors, as long as this is top of mind, this will continue to have a big impact on us. For those who are just starting out, if you're whatever, 30 years old, you just got out of grad school, you just got your first sort of good job where you could start putting money in the markets and the first thing that happens to you is, you know, your your contributions drop 35% and there's a global pandemic and you lose your job. I think you're probably forever tentative because of that. So I think some people who have no other context for markets, people who have not had a longer term good experience with markets, it'll have an undue influence on them. In terms of human nature more broadly, I think it will be, uh, again, I think it's a fork in the road. I think you are seeing um, some of the absolute best of human nature. I mean, you are seeing men and women scientists, doctors, uh, delivery professionals, grocery store, uh, grocery store workers, you're seeing people uh, who in large measure have not historically been esteemed very highly by society in some cases, 
being absolutely selfless and giving and, and putting it all on the line for the, the greater good. I think you're seeing examples of, you know, people delivering groceries to their elderly neighbors, like people just people, you know, these these little things we see on Twitter of, you know, people singing from the rooftops and leading exercise videos from their balconies. Like there's all kinds of great news out there. And then I think you'll also see an uptick in domestic abuse, uh, in divorce, in addiction. I mean, I think you'll see really bad stuff come out of this because we're not we're not wired for this kind of economic storm and we're not wired for this kind of disconnection relationally. Uh, but I think you'll also see some really wonderful stuff uh, come out of it. So I think it will turn up the volume in either direction. I think it will crank up the volatility around human behavior, but I'm not uh, perhaps as, as negative as he was. I think it'll, I think there will be some really incredible opportunities for goodness and light and service. And I think there will be some, you know, really terrible stuff that comes from it as well. So let's just try to, for the last question here, let's try to build on that sort of optimistic view. Um, and, you know, could you just talk to, you know, the power of optimism and the positive parts of human psychology that, you know, as, a, as humanity, as a country, have, have, you know, allowed us to sort of get through these difficult times and sort of achieve positive outcomes? Um, after periods like this? Yeah, so uh, when I was in grad school, I worked at a suicide hotline. And when I worked at the suicide hotline, the, the very first thing they told us was when you get someone on the phone who's, who's acutely suicidal, the first thing you have to help them do is you have to instill hope. You have to help them see a future. And so it's been it's been said, and I agree that that depression is the inability to construct a future. It's an inability to see a tomorrow that's brighter than today. And so I think that one of the things that we need to be, you know, sort of fantasizing about right now is what does the future look like in a positive way? You know, what has this great pause taught me about what I value and what I don't value? Like, what can I do more of? What can I leave behind? You know, where's the first, where's the first place I'm going on vacation? You know, where's the, where's the first meal I'm going to have out? You know, where am I going to finally get a haircut? You know, whatever it is that that's getting you excited. I think it's, it's, it's right. And it's good to be excited about those things and to construct that future. My, this is not financial advice. I don't know anything more than anyone else, but sort of my base case right now is that we have a really tough couple of years, and then we have a, a period of unprecedented economic uh, and inter interpersonal prosperity. I think that people are going to reset their priorities. Uh, I think that people are going to re-engage. They're going to understand that your vote with your dollars is more important than, than just about anything else you can do, that the way you spend your money intentionally can bring about so much good in the world. And so I, I really think it's going to be tough for a while. I'm not personally of the V-shaped recovery school. I think it will be uh, harder for longer than I think some people think. But I think that once we come out of this, it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be really something special. And so that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. That's great. That's great. Daniel, this has been a fantastic 
discussion. I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, and, you know, we just want to thank you for joining us um, today. If people want to learn more about you, whether it's um, your writing, your books, um, your podcast, where can they find you? Yeah, so I, all my writing is on the Brinker Capital blog. So if you go to the Brinker Capital blog and just look for the behavioral finance section, that is me. Um, I'm on very active on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD, and uh, as well as Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Great. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.